Himalayas Studios. It's been the longest year imaginable. And like almost everyone else on this planet, I'm looking forward to 2021. But before we get there, we should do some looking back. After all, it's that time when critics are made to take stock of the year in culture and publish your lists of the best TV shows, movies, books, and so on. I have a longer list of the best podcasts of 2020 coming out this week on Vulture, so watch out for that. It's been a strange year for podcasts. There's been a lot of consolidation and a lot of change due to the pandemic. But despite all that, there's also been lots and lots of new shows, some of which were actually great. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of those shows and dive into the ones we really loved. From Alias Studios, this is Servant a Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, the best podcasts of 2020. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. Recently, I called up two people who follow podcasts pretty closely. Sarah Larson, a critic for The New Yorker who writes a lot about podcasts, and New Hampshire Public Radio's Rebecca Lavoie, who is also the host of Crime Writers On, a podcast that reviews true crime media, including, of course, podcasts. Here's our conversation about the best shows from this year. Okay, let's just kick off by talking a little bit about how the year in podcasting went. One thing that I noticed personally is that I don't think any one kind of breakout hit happened, with the exception of maybe like the show that ended up being my number one pick. I'm curious, uh, and let's start with Sarah here. Like, what has the year in podcasting looked like for you? What did you find yourself paying more attention to? What did you notice being any particular trends? Anything that stood out to you? Okay, well, I I say this more as a person than as a podcast critic, but I feel like the year has kind of been divided into thirds or at mm. least pre and post COVID. You know, for me in in the writing I was doing for The New Yorker, I was actually at the beginning of the year traveling around following primary stuff. And so I was listening to a ton of, um, you know, I listened to Stranglehold. Uh, I listened to all these political podcasts and sort of primary Oh, podcasts. shout out to New Hampshire Public Radio. Exactly. Which, uh, that yeah. was a great, that was a great show. And then you know, suddenly I started listening to a ton of COVID podcasts and things that like all the normal podcasts that sort of adapted to deal with COVID, which was, you know, kind of everything had to do that. So, you know, I think there were other other trends in terms of regular shows that popped up, but between politics and COVID, you know, those things were pretty dominant. Those were definitely like the big polls of the year in general. So I guess it makes sense that a lot of shows clustered. Rebecca, was that your experience as well, that like the majority of the things that 
that you saw sort of pop that were kind of COVID or, or political related? I would actually add a third poll to that uh, tent that you're building over there and say that <laughs> there has been a huge wave of TV podcast like co-production projects. Mm. That's something that has really, really exploded this year. I think about all the stuff that Pineapple Street has been doing with HBO programming. I think about mm. um, a, sh- a podcast like Morally Indefensible, which was sort of a meta look at the Jeffrey McDonald case that went with a TV series called, uh, I don't know what it was called, but I didn't watch it. The LA Times released It Was Simple about the Betty Broderick murders, and that went with Dirty John season two. Mm-hmm. Um, so there does seem to sort of be this like surge in thinking anyway that you can take one subject and reach a mass market by putting it on two platforms or using one of the platforms to try to push the other. Usually podcast is sort of like the ad for the TV program. Yeah. So that's that's another big trend that I saw this year. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and I think it does tie it into the whole pandemic thing. Like one of the major conversations I've heard when everything started looking down was uh, you know, a lot of uh, you know TV productions can be made. So a lot of uh, actors were looking for other ways to stay in the culture, I guess, um, which yeah. kind of led to, I think, just more conversations and mingling between the TV side and podcast side. If I could just point out one other thing that I noticed this year by its absence, uh, where the hell is the giant Gimlet show that we're so used to getting every year? Usually there's like one big production um, that that company rolls out that gets, you know, it, maybe it happened and I just missed it. But it does seem along the lines of what Nick was saying, with there being no huge breakout show, um, you know, Gimlet kind of seems to have, I don't want to say faded away, but they're certainly not producing like the big HBO style hit podcast this year. Um, Their hit podcast this year was the case of the missing hit. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. Yes. Single episode of Reply All, right? That single episode of Reply All, like, is their loss leader for that company this year, it seems. <laughs> well, the, technically speaking, Resistance, which just came out, kind of fits that bill. It's it's a little late into the year. Um, and, it, it you know, it's, it's I think only about four episodes in as we're recording this. Um, it, it doesn't, hasn't quite had that kind of uh, press push frenzy kind of thing that usually accompanies one of these big things that, that, that you're talking about mm-hmm. when it comes to a new Gimlet show. But I think you're absolutely right. And part of this, I feel, is like in general, um, things didn't really break through because I, I really do think like everything came down to COVID and the elections this year. Yeah, It's very hard to, to launch anything that's not COVID related and have it uh, really meaningfully break through. Uh, Rebecca, what are, the, what are the reasons that I think uh, I, I really want to talk to you for, for this roundtable? It's like you have this handle on the true crime podcast space that like I simply do not have. <laughs> what, what would you say are the major true crime podcast trends uh, this year? Well, I would say one of them is, for me at least, very bad, which is that these mass-produced wonder-bred productification (laughs) of true crime podcasts that keep coming out, like in these huge, long waves. I mean, if I honestly have to listen to one more Wondery production, which I do, because by the way, my podcast reviews podcasts, so I kind of have to, but they are all the same. They are all the same. And they sound so manufactured and so produced. The people who host them clearly have no connection to the field tape or the interviews or any of the... You mean like Bunga Bunga? 
Yeah, yeah. It's literally just like going to a studio, read this script. We've gathered all this tape. We've put it together. We put a sexy blues song at the start of it yeah. and gave it like a, a piece of podcast art with a hand in it. And there's your Wondery <laughs> podcast. And that, that sort of seems, it's kind of happening a little bit across networks, but Wondery is sort of the leader in that. And it's just increasingly more difficult to find something in this genre that like I love. Uh, you know, the sort of deeply reported public radio style stuff, it's hard to discover right now um, and then when it comes to you know the, the crime stuff I mean one of my theories is maybe they're running out of murders because a lot of true <laughs> crime never out of murders. Come about, <laughs> well a lot of them have been about con men instead of being about killings they're about <laughs> you know you think of a show like um, the, the missing crypto queen or yeah. um, there sort of seems to be this sort of shift to you know people who pulled one over on someone else rather than somebody who I don't know killed somebody that's else so that, that's a big trend that I've seen too but also another huge topic that's come up that we also talk about a lot on my show are podcasts about sexual assault and sexual mm. abuse mm. which there's been a big surge of in the last year or so and some of them have been some of the best podcasts of the year like what well, I don't. Am I, should I spoil one of the ones? Oh, no, no. Well, let's, let's save that. Let's let's save that for the top three. Uh, one last question for Sarah before we head into the top three stuff. Yeah. Um, were, were there any like types of podcasts that you found yourself listening to that that surprised you that uh, under like this past year? You know, the things that really jumped out to me in this particular year were things that made me feel better, and especially things that were funny. And mm. if things were genuinely funny. I, it was like a gift. It was like if, if I laughed really hard and not just the, oh, this is clever, but in the like, ha, 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 ha you know, I, I really felt like thank you uh, for making me do yeah. that because um, I wasn't expecting it here alone in my kitchen, uh, you know, <laughs> in month X of the pandemic. You know, you know, what's really also very soothing, Sarah, are podcasts where you have smart friends talking about something they are deeply passionate about oh, that yeah. you don't care about at all. Like, that's one of my favorite <laughs> genres of podcasts. Like, I love a date with Dateline. They're obsessed with Dateline, which I never watch. It's awesome. Um, you know, there's a show, Stephen Stephen Ray Morris, who produces My Favorite Murderer, makes a show about Jurassic Park called See Jurassic Right, which, again, I don't care about at all. Really fun to listen to. And, of course, Adam Ragusea's unfinished podcast about Sting, which was his follow-up to his great podcast about Billy Joel, where he and his friend Meg just sort of rip apart, you know, songs and artists. I, I don't care about any of this stuff, but I love immersing myself in their passions. Can I say one more thing about um, Go for what it, I yeah. so the things I did not want to listen to this year mm. were podcasts mm. about Trump, which I've enjoyed in the past. There have <laughs> been a lot of great podcasts about all the terrible things that Trump and his businesses have done. Mm. I didn't necessarily I, I just couldn't take it anymore, you know, so there was yeah. that. And I didn't want to listen to true crime either. When the pandemic hit, like, hmm. I just had less of an appetite than usual. Uh, and it might have even just been true crime burnout a little bit. Rebecca, did, did you have any genres that you didn't find yourself wanting to listen to this year? Um, sadly, I have to kind of put true crime on that list too. Even it's my job <laughs> it's to listen job. to it. Um, 
<laughs> but also, there just hasn't been a standout great podcast in that genre this year, mm. other than, you know, a, a couple of comedy podcasts, and other than, you know, um, the follow-up episodes of In the Dark Season 2, which is mm. like a three-year-old podcast yeah. that's still pumping out excellent content Absolutely. about the same story. Yeah. There's just very little that, you know, I loved in that genre this year. And if I start listening to something and it's not great, I just think that the bar... You know, the bar is very low for a lot of listeners to true crime. It is extremely high for me. And Mm. I didn't hear anything this year that really crossed that bar. Okay, okay. You probably want to get to our actual picks. We'll do that after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Okay, so we've set the stage for what 2020 was like. Uh, Let's get to it. Our top three picks for best podcasts of the year. Sarah, what is your number three? Number three is Unfinished Short Creek. So Unfinished Short Creek is uh, reported and hosted by Ash Sanders and Sarah Ventry. It's a really in-depth series. I think they were there for four and a half years. They reported it for a long time about this... um, People inside and outside of a group of fundamentalist polygamist Mormons who live in a community on the Utah-Arizona border. Mm -hmm. And um, it really beautifully kind of introduces you to the history of the group and what the appeal of living in this community was like. It was almost in its early decades kind of like an Amish-type situation with everyone helping Mm -hmm. each other out. And um, there's a lot of great sound work. Uh, There's singing kind of eerie songs by children's choirs singing about the leaders of the group. And Mm. um, it's unnerving, but it's also beautiful. And you can see what the community felt like and what the appeal might have been. I've devoted my work to the building up and establishment of the kingdom of God. This is not my work, the work of God. Leroy Johnson was in charge of the community from the 1950s to the 80s. Being prophet meant his followers believed he spoke for God on earth. But everyone we talked to described him as a warm, caring leader, a man of the people. This is a community pageant in Short Creek in the 90s. Almost everyone called Leroy Johnson Uncle Roy. Roy 
they just were very sensitive to listening to the people in the community and the people who left it and what the details of all that uh, were. And it doesn't feel sensational. I mean, it's a very, to us, incredibly dramatic or melodramatic story. And it could be done luridly by any number of podcasters or reporters, you know, and it, it doesn't feel like that at all. And, you know, the pacing is really nice and the sound is really immersive and lovely. And yeah, they just did it as well as it could be done, I think. Rebecca, what's your what's your number three? My number three is Nice White Parents from Serial Productions, now owned, of course, by The New York Times. There are about a dozen grown-ups sitting on small plastic chairs around a classroom table. The PTA executive board. Principal Juman is here, too. Amy's leading, and the principal jumps in. She says she wants a minute to share how much the new fundraising committee had raised so far. Amy looks confused. Principal Juman goes on to say... The new fundraising committee has had a lot of success. Mm-hmm. But total, they, they have raised, according to Rob, about $18,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just had a donation from a family uh, a couple weeks ago who want to be anonymous um, that they're going to give either five to ten, ten grand in December. So this is, this is big money. Mm-hmm. People so, seem unclear what to do with their faces. This is good news, right? But also, wait, what's the fundraising committee? This is a series about the um, segregation of schools in the modern era and about the, you know, well-meaning liberal white people who continue to uh, support segregation, even as they're saying that they don't support segregation. And and one of the things I really loved about this podcast and Hannah Jaffe Welts reporting is, first of all, she knows everything there is to know about reporting on school. She obviously did this reporting for many, many years. But one of the things that I love about it that almost no one is doing really well right now is the way it covers whiteness and the way that it really, really looks at white people through a lens almost like we have sort of wrongly been looking at people of color through a lens for many, many years. Like it really examines what whiteness means. It really calls to task the power of being white. And it's the kind of podcast that if you're white and listen to it and you don't feel bad about being white after you hear it, there is something wrong with you. So I really, really love this series. And if uh, anyone out there hasn't listened to it, which I doubt because it was very popular, I would recommend it. There were three great podcasts this year about school segregation, basically. Uh, nice White Parents, and then also the second season of The Promise, which was an excellent series about a similar situation in Nashville, in one neighborhood in Nashville. Uh, and then the new Fiasco Leon season, Navax, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. which was mostly about historic stuff, but also uh, in Boston. Um, but I, I thought that that series was terrific. And there are all such important facets of the same problem. And I hope that people... I hope that people listened to them uh, and and took something out of it. So uh, my number three pick is a little weird. <laughs> it's this show that came out all the way back in January. Pretty small show. It's independent. It's called My Year in Mensa. It's hosted um, by and written by uh, this comedian. Uh, I believe she's also works in other forms of, of entertainment industry, Jamie Loftus. Um, and it is basically an adaptation of a couple of columns she wrote over the years about her kind of um, kind of jokey attempt, like a jokey journey of applying for membership in the Mensa, the the high intel, the high IQ quote unquote uh, society, uh, and sort of her kind of adventures moving through that space and being very skeptical about it. 
Now, I want to be clear that I am not doing this podcast series to strictly dunk on the Mensons. Uh, I will be dunking on them occasionally, but I'm more doing this to analyze how these sorts of groups came to be in the first place and sort of what they have evolved into, because it definitely did start as a dumb joke on my part, but uh, people, unfortunately, contain multitudes, awful, and so what I'm going to do is take you through the story via my experiences and then go back in time to trace the history of these organizations and ultimately figure out what the fucking point of any of it was in the first place. And I love this show largely in, in, for, for two reasons. One is from an aesthetics perspective, it's basically a one-woman show. She does the whole thing. She narrates the whole thing. It's it's a long monologue punctuated by sound, with sound effects and and kind of really humorous kind of uh, oral tics, essentially. Um, and it's four episodes. It, it moves like the wind. It's <laughs> I, I you know you cannot tell me prior to going to the show that like somebody can do a four episode, a four or five or six, however long the show is, uh, ep- um, show in which one person is a primary voice with minimal <laughs> sound backing, uh, and that it would be compelling in any way. Uh, and she, she totally does it. That is it's awesome. It's a fantastic show. I will go to bat for the show uh, anytime. Um, All right, uh, Sarah, number two. My number two is Reveal American Rehab, which is Reveal the series, the long ongoing investigative series is hosted by Al Letson. But the main reporters on this series were Shoshana Walter, Laura Starczewski, and Ike Shris Kandaranda. And, you know, the concept of the series is um, it starts out with this woman, Penny Rawlings, whose brother is essentially trapped in this rehab program. It's like a residential thing uh, called Senecor, and people basically end up working there for free or very little money as a part of like work therapy is the concept. Uh, And it's it's kind of bonkers. But beyond that, it's really abusive. um, And it's not really about people's sobriety so much as about, you know, making money for various somewhat nefarious uh, interests. They told us that it was eight months. He would be there eight months, which is a lie. Senecor's program was actually two years long. Well, then I found out he was not allowed to talk to us. We were not allowed to have any contact with him. Not until Tim had been there at least three months. No phone calls, no visits. And there was one more issue, a big one. Penny says a Senecor staff member had told her that on-the-job training was part of the program. But then just the way that it takes you through the history of the forming of the program, which actually reminded me a lot of Scientology, like even the the founder, mm-hmm. the old tapes of the founder yeah. sounded a lot like L. Ron Hubbard to me, uh, kind of in the energy and the zeal and the wackiness and then how many people kind of went along with it. Also, the music happened to be great. There, you know, happened to be a lot of jazz musicians <laughs> who were involved in this heroin rehab scene in the 50s. Uh, and they just had these great recordings of some of their music. So it was, and they're really colorful people involved. And the reporting was so so well done and, um, you know, sensitively and divided up nicely and sort of vigorously. And they must have been reporting it for years. Rebecca, what's your number two? 
Well, I'll confess in advance that my number two and number one are actually both tied for number one, uh, and they're very different from each other, and that's why I couldn't rank them. So I'm going to put as my first number one, uh, Canary from the Washington Post. Mm. This is an outstanding podcast about... Um, this is, it's very hard to describe because it's hard to describe without spoiling it. And I really don't want to for anyone who hasn't listened to it. But the first episode is about a sexual assault that takes place. It's a street crime. A woman named Lauren, she's a hairstylist in Washington, D.C. And she sort of has a very difficult time in, in Washington, D.C. court system around the, the, you know, the, the justice around her crime. She kind of takes justice into her own hands. She hangs up signs around the neighborhood when the guy who attacked doesn't get the sentence that she feels he should have gotten. But then at the end of the first episode, um, you know, there's a lot of journalism in this podcast, which I absolutely love. Um, The Washington Post's Amy Britton reported it. And the transparency of the journalism is she talks about publishing this article about Lauren and then what happened afterwards. And what happened afterwards is actually what the podcast is about. It is shocking. It is stunning. It is beautifully made. One day, back in June of 2017, a young woman walked up and down a bustling street in Washington, D.C. She was carrying with her a stack of paper flyers that she passed out in bars and restaurants and in cafes. But these flyers, they were unusual. They weren't advertisements or lost-and-found posters. Instead, they had screenshots of something called a case docket. It's like a timeline of the major events of a criminal court case, and it has the names of judges and lawyers and defendants. This docket showed that a man pleaded guilty to charges of sexual abuse. There were several photos of him, and at the top of the flyers, in bright red capital letters, it said, This man has assaulted six women in D.C., one of the things that I often say on my show that, you know, not everybody like loves the language, but it's it's true. A podcast that's especially difficult like this one, like carrying these heavy topics with it, it has to be well made and it has to be entertaining. Otherwise, you will not want to listen to the next mm-hmm. episode. And Canary really fulfills that. The way the story is structured, I just I binged the whole thing in one day and I loved it and I didn't want it to end despite the fact that it's about an incredibly difficult wow. topic. I just thought it was a gorgeous podcast. Oh, wow. I just want to confess here that I uh, binged the whole thing after I filed my top 10 list. (laughs) Um, And and I agree with you. It's really, really hard to talk about this show without giving the game away. (laughs) So should we just like quietly sashay to the the next thing in our list? (laughs) Awkwardly step away from (laughs) from this pick. Uh, okay, my number two pick, uh, which is a very, uh, I guess it's a very cliched pick for me because um, this franchise was my number one last uh, in my, my top ten list last year. It's Lost Notes 1980. Mm. It's, a, it's a show by uh, KCRW. It's, it's um, uh, KPCC's sister station. Shout out. Um, this season uh, is completely hosted written and hosted and written by uh, Hanif Abdurraqib, who's this fantastic poet, essayist, um, cultural critic incredibly interesting just like thinker about music and art um, and this collection of stories uh, so Lost Notes in general is basically a, a collection an anthology of stories about the music business and and various people artists and, and lives that sort of pass through it and in this third season it just clusters around all stories come from the year 1980 so you have stories uh 
about John Lennon, and there's a really remarkable episode that links his, um, so thematically links his death to the death of uh, sort of a punk icon named Darby Crash. Um, and Hanif, as a poet, is makes for a wonderful, amazing narrator. Lesotho ran out of food, drink, and hotel space. People parked cars at the border and sat atop them, hoping to catch some sounds echoing out from the stadium. During the weekend, there were people who slept unbothered on the sidewalks, who crammed themselves into the doorways of stores. There were emergency supplies sent in from nearby South African towns. The weekend itself was a celebration. A small fantasy of liberation peeled off from the decades of oppression. Oppression that, even during the concert itself, still hovered. And another thing that's really interesting about the show is how the actual story portions themselves are truncated. Oftentimes, the story is told in about 12 to 15 minutes, minutes mm-hmm. maybe. And it's because of, you know, uh, conditions of the pandemic. He was supposed to go out and do interviews. And, and my understanding was that it was supposed to be a more conventionally structured show. But the necessities of having to essentially flip it from, an in, from a sort of documentary show into a series of essays with occasionally long-form interviews attached to the end to kind of like substantiate the raw material of the episodes. The effect is amazing. And, and, I, and it really makes me think that like more, there should be more essayistic style shows mm-hmm. and 12-minute narrative episodes, nothing wrong with that. We'll love more of that, especially when every word counts, which is a notion that poets um, prize in particular, I think. So uh, that's my number two pick. Uh, I'm not so sure if either of you have heard it, but I will. This is my writer night. This is my writer night show. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, why don't we start with you uh, for your second number one or number one B? All right. <laughs> my second number one is a podcast that you've, you've all heard of. It is in a genre I typically hate, which is a white guy explores something totally inconsequential for a long series, long series. I think episode. I know what it is. This is a topic of this conversation. Was... Yes, yes. We don't want to go ahead. <laughs> yes, of course. Although my tie for number podcasts. one podcast is Wind of Change from Crooked Media and Pineapple Street Studios. I want to say first, uh, because I have the chance to and I have the microphone, Pineapple Street and Pineapple Street Studios is making the best podcasts being made right now, period. Producer Henry Malofsky is the best producer in podcasting, period. I do not, don't at me. Listen, I work at New Hampshire Public Radio with like the second and third best, but he's the best. Uh, Wind of Change. (laughs) It's, of course, about Patrick Rad and Keefe. He heard a rumor that the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions was actually written as a piece of propaganda by the CIA. And he goes on a long, winding journey to figure out if that's true. And the thousands of fans around me. Ukrainians of all ages, older people who remembered the song from when it came out, and younger people who learned it from their parents. They all raised their cell phones in the air, and we all seemed to sway together. You hear that? That yelp of blind enthusiasm? That was me. I mean, everybody in the place was singing. People were smiling. People had tears in their eyes. This song felt so different from all the others. And there were moments when Klaus would stop singing himself and just hold his mic stand out to the crowd. The reason I love this show is because it uses sound 
Mm. perfectly. This story could not have been told in any other medium besides podcasting. He also takes us on side trips that don't matter. We go to a convention at one point that doesn't matter, but it's a subculture that I've never heard of that was totally delightful. (laughs) And it's also an exploration of political propaganda, which is incredibly timely. And listening to Wind of Change and looking at my Facebook feed at the same time felt like things were syncing up a little bit. So I I just I loved I love this podcast. I didn't want to love this podcast. Again, it's a genre that I typically am like, oh, another one. But I couldn't help it. I was charmed by it. I loved it. And that is Wind of Change. I totally loved Wind of Change, too. I just like the fact that you can go in having heard that song and maybe not caring about it. And you come out feel I mean, I was so moved by, you know, maybe the second episode uh, when he's in that crowd listening to Wind of Change, you know, he's like at a concert, <laughs> I'm just getting all moved. But thinking about what it might have meant to the yeah. people hearing it and, you know, the the idea of maybe if the CIA did, I mean, that's such a thrilling idea, even if it's wrong. It's like a great, fun. Yeah. There is something lighthearted about the pursuit of that question, but it's also really serious. I mean, that's just a great combination. Sarah, what's your number one? Floodlines. That is also my number one. I have kind of figured that we we have we coalesce on the same one. I Go mean, ahead. Floodlines is a masterpiece. You know, it's just um, when you hear a podcast that is truly great and it's part of your job to mm. be a podcast critic. Um, there's just an extra personal thrill of, you know, there's something that's incredibly well reported, beautifully put together, emotionally, you know, compelling. And also the tape in this podcast. I mean, I love what uh, Van Newkirk said on your show, Nick, about uh, when you said, why, why do this as a podcast? And he said, I think, he said, like, New Orleans is a city of storytellers or of stories or something like that, right? It's a city of good talkers, for one thing. Um, and, you know, the characters in the series are just so compelling and so so interesting and uh, funny often. But the, the sound design is obviously gorgeous. I mean, that first episode when the, when the storm is coming is, is, is art, you know? I mean, I just had to listen to it a bunch of times for pleasure because I was just so blown away <laughs> by it. And also, um, as a host, Van Newkirk is, you know, it's its beautifully written. It takes exactly the right tone of knowing that, assuming the audience's intelligence, but not being stiff. Uh, you know, he talks like a normal person and a fun, relatable person, but he's also serious. You know, I feel like it, it assumes the best of the listener and also has fun with the listener when appropriate. And then, you know, that interview with mm-hmm. Michael Brown was was also just a masterpiece at the end, I thought. The way he, he really pushes him, but he also shows compassion. And, you know, I think it's quite damning, but it's also... You know, it accepts him for the flawed human that he is, working in a flawed system. I struggle with, and I know you, you're you not going to answer the question, but it's like, what do people want me to apologize for? The paradox of Michael Brown seems to be this. All of his efforts to defend himself, to not be made a scapegoat, they seem to make it impossible for him to perform empathy to understand why an apology from him might mean something. And maybe that's a a blind spot of mine, 
very well could be, either a blind spot or an unwillingness. I think you kind of hit a nail here when you kind of said that, like, you can even listen to... <laughs> so, Oliver's put it this way. There are a lot of really great shows, really great podcasts, really great television shows, really great novels that are about, um, that are beautifully, excellently sort of composed masterpieces about hard things that I will never revisit because it's so yeah. hard to sit through yeah. that again. And that that is completely not what you get with this, with the Floatlines experience, largely because each moment and like I feel like each episode is, is still dealing with something that um, that has a lot to chew on and it does so in a way that that doesn't mm. kind of carry that heaviness it doesn't carry that burden it it takes the burden as a given it takes the trauma mm-hmm. as a given yeah and it, it mostly sort of like all right let's work our way through this yeah in a way that feels like artistically accessible yeah I mean there's also a lot of really small choices that feel you know it's the sum of small things that make a really big greater thing right like the fact that he sounds exactly the same as a narrator as when he's an interviewer Mm -hmm. that's not that's not common you know and that says a lot about the performance style you know Um, and I'm like yeah you know I'm getting I'm accessing this person's brain as much as I am accessing his sort of perspective on this investigation and examination that he's doing it's a fantastic show and and I hope um, I hope The Atlantic does more like this and I hope uh, he does more, more work in this medium it's fantastic uh, Sarah, Rebecca, thank you so thank much for taking you. the time to talk Nick, to me. Uh, I hope the rest of the year goes well for you guys. You and um, we'll be talking soon. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thank you. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andrea Swahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Perotti at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Alias Studios. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.